I think it's a big deal even for adults. You should see um, the people that come to University of Colorado Boulder and maybe come from California or come from another uh, warmer climate and see snow for the first time. Um, they get they get very excited. Oh, yeah. They're not, they're not kids anymore because it's something very, very new and different. And um, I also know that our, our daughter-in-law that comes from India the first time um, she saw snow in the United States. Um, she found it very fascinating, and um, she was a mature adult when she came here. So um, I think it's something that's very intriguing the first time you see it. Yeah, I remember I have a friend uh, who came. It was, she lived in an inland state, so um, in in another country, and I can't remember which one, and. She, when she saw the Pacific Ocean, she it, she just couldn't stop staring. It was like, oh, my God, it's the real ocean. I go, yeah, it's real. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a water baby. I was I, Except for when I lived in the Midwest, I lived in the East Coast and the West Coast, and I, I always had oceans. So to me, it'd be like you in the snow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's it's no big deal, but somebody's never seen it. It's like I don't know. It's a godly moment, I guess, for them. <laughs> kind of cool, though, huh? Yes. Um, anytime you see anything for the first time, it's kind of a cool, cool thing. Um, um, makes you, I think, appreciate uh, life in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, the complexity of, of what is available in, in different parts of the world um, and that's how come um, I love um, being a travel writer who's been able to travel all over the place um, because it opens my eyes to um, many things some of which I've read in books other things that I were, was totally unfamiliar with but there's nothing like seeing something firsthand. You can maybe read about a, a snowfall, but to actually see a snowfall in person is very different. Uh, so that's the, that's the joy of, of traveling, to be able to see um, as much of the world as, 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 as you can. It's, have you ever like read about some place in a book and then been shocked when you saw it? Like, not Not in a bad way, it's just, I remember uh, when I went to Europe and I was in England and I was going to Bath and I had read about baths in Jane Austen and Agatha Christie and the way they both described it, it's like a little hamlet. Uh, but when you go there, it's huge. It's like Los Angeles. It's spread out across all the mountains and everything. I mean, it's it's humongous. Were you? Did you ever go someplace and it was like not exactly what you were expecting because you only got it from a book? <laughs> um, well, most of my impressions come from fellow travel writers, and oftentimes I hate to say it, I, I, and, and sometimes it comes from books or movies or whatever. Movies are a little bit more accurate because you can actually see it. <laughs> hopefully, see. Hopefully, it's not a set; it's the actual the actual place. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that oftentimes the people that write about places um, unfortunately have never been there. And so they borrow from other
other people's work, and may embellish or do or more or less say the same thing. And sometimes the original source, I think, also didn't see um, or actually visit the place. So there are countless times I can't tell you where I'll I'll um, go online and and read, um, you know, just hand cherry pick different different. Um, um, sites and should get an impression of what I should look at or what what's what the best things are and what I should um, be aware of and I'll have notes and sometimes I actually make physical copies of this stuff and then um, I'll either get out of my hotel or off a cruise ship or a bus or a train or wherever wherever I am and I start walking and it's like, <laughs> like this isn't what I what I read um, the proximities are different. The size, like you said, can be very different. You imagine something being very small and it's very large or vice versa. So there's this disconnect, I'd say, far too often between what people write about and what you actually can see and um, in person. And so early on in my travel writing career, I made an effort, if possible, because sometimes I'm, I'm, I agree to write stories if they are list stories, so they don't give a whole lot of detail. They're more um, concise, um, little, little, um, a few, few, a few sentences about a place. But if I'm able to expound on an area or do a, a, a first-person narrative of a visit, I try really hard to give my readers an overall description. So. Um, they won't be misled when they when they, when they get there and realize that um, it, there's a disconnect between what's written and what is is reality. Um, and um, but it takes time and it takes well, you know taking a lot of um, notes and sometimes I don't have the ability to take notes so I take a lot of crazy pictures. I'll take pictures of the ground. I'll take pictures of um, just the landscape, just just different things, so that when I go back to write about a place, um, I can remember better the finer details of what I experienced. I take um, pictures of signs a lot, like where things are, you know, like right. the like directional signs. signs. Yeah. I'll take a lot of pictures of signs, so um, even though pictures now are timestamped because many of my pictures are on my phone, and I can kind of backtrack and figure out where places are. If I take um, landmarks or, or pictures of signs, then I, then I can recall better exactly where I was to retrace my steps. So it's a whole process. Um, I wish I had a better memory, um, a photographic memory, so I could recall every you know, minor detail, but I, um, I don't. So fortunately, uh, my, my, my phone comes in very, very handy because yeah. <laughs> it, it records a good part of good part of my journey so I can then um, look back at the pictures and and come up with a an accurate depiction of where I was. I like places that have like plaques about who lived there or what happened there because I would take pictures of all of them so I can remember it. <laughs> no, I take pictures I even in a museum I, I'll take a lot of pictures of some of the descriptive language. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I can recall um, more specifics about inside of museum than let's say the mu museum's website, um, because I try and avoid, um, you know, harvesting my material from 
previously published stuff. I try and um, get to the finer details of what you hopefully will see if you have a, a tour of a specific place. Um, and um, also rely on, on the help of, of locals who, who live there um, for their insight and their information. Yeah, one place that's got really good stuff, um, well, there's there's several here in L.A., but the one I would remember was the Field Museum in Chicago. They have a lot of great descriptions that are right by whatever the displays are. Really full and clear. You know, they're not behind the glass. They're in front, so they're not kind of, you know, they're, they don't have that distortion from the glass. I don't like that. There's some museums and places and galleries that will put up, uh, a sign about the artist or whoever, or, or if it's a natural museum, the, the plant or the animal. But it's behind glass. <laughs> so when you take a picture of it, it's distorted. And you have to be really careful with the picture you're taking. Have you ever found that? <laughs> yeah, um, and then it depends on... Um how much you know when the when the exhibits were created? How long ago? What uh, what type of technology was used? I mean, I've been to old school museums where the descriptions um, are are typed on, on on sheets of paper and put and then put behind glass because they're 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 old. There hasn't been enough money to um, refurbish the museum or update it. Um, and those are sometimes really hard to capture on on with a digital image because of um, the faded typing as well as the the plastic or the glass that you have to shoot through. Um, but some of those museums are um, have some real good gems in them oh, yeah. that that you <laughs> that you you know couldn't imagine would be in such a place. Um, but it's all also obviously about money and, and how many people go to visit that place and, and how well they're funded as to how well their signage is. And then other places, you're, you're kind of surprised because um, small communities that obviously either had outside funding or were um, had some type of bond issue or something where they were able to um, get significant funding to create amazing displays and engaging um, exhibits um, that interact really well with, with, with school-aged children. So you never really, I never really know what I'm going to come across you know, when, I, when I walk into a museum because it, it varies um, greatly uh, from location to location. Um, do you go to all different kinds? I love all different kinds of museums. I'm just curious. Um, I, I, I try and go to museums that give me a flavor of the, of the community. Um, for instance, when we were in Iceland in the summer, I went to a, a, a whale museum because I can't remember the name of the, of the place we were at and probably would have butchered the name anyways. But they had the famous whale, whale, mu whale museum that we, um, that we went into and it was and it was very fascinating because um, we had been on a, just had been on a whale ship, um, you know, chasing a whale around the harbor. Um, also in Iceland in the summer, we went to an island uh, that was famous for um, an eruption an eruption that took place. I think it was in the 1960s and 1970s, and they created a um, 
Volcano Museum, <laughs> um, which which was very interesting because it was on top of, it was constructed on top of the excavations of some of the homes that had been buried um, from the volcano. Um, so it was very, very fascinating. So those are two instances where I would kind of pick museums that kind of describe the history or culture. Other times, um, I'll be happy to go to a natural history museum that is, that is, let's say, um, gives an overview of, of, of um, the world in, in general, um, not, not a specific place. So it really, it really depends. Um, it depends on time, depends on location. Um, there's a lot of factors that determine where where I end up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, here in San Diego, we have a really good air and space museum. I love going there. And we also have several art museums, and we have a big, huge natural history museum with all these mosaics and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you go about Boa Park, and you can spend all your time inside because you'll be in all the museums. <laughs> well, and that's also nice because there's some cities that um, I think really took the time to plan, um, if, especially if they were a larger city like like San Diego. They were able, somebody somebody had a lot of foresight and decided to set aside a huge tract of land um, to basically be the um, place where all the museums and culture would, would be so it'd be convenient for not only locals but, but visitors. Um, other cities, um, you know, weren't as fortunate or didn't have the space or whatever. Um, so it, it all depends, but you're lucky because um, it's a lot easier when it's a one-stop. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Like having to get in your car and drive to six different places. And it also makes it easier for um, somebody visiting from out of town. Um, when things are within walking distance, um, that's usually more of the case when you have a, a, a smaller um, destination where things are, 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 you know, more close, close, close together. But it's nice in larger cities when there, when there was some planner who, who decided, oh, we're going to, you know, set aside this track land and, and put X, Y, and Z here. Well, Balboa Park is really interesting. It has a different kind of history than any place that I know of. Balboa Park was created to do the World's Fair in San Diego. Um, I think it's the 1915 and 1916. It's two years in a row. And they created all the facades you still see of um, buildings from... Uh, uh, the art museums there and all the different places, but they were facades. They weren't. You didn't. You couldn't go in them. The, there were some that you could go in, but it was still made of um, paper mache. It wasn't real. And then it was like backed up with some concrete so it would stay up. So what happened was after the two world fairs, people loved it, and the tourists were coming every year. So they decided to re keep this basic outline and create the buildings so that they would stay through earthquakes and make them earthquake proof and all that stuff. And that's when they decided, okay, this one's going to be the Natural History Museum, this is going to be the Art Museum, this is going to be the Science Museum, this will be the Photography Museum. The, and then they added things to it, like the space and 
uh, Air and Space Museum and the gl old Globe Theater that they created and stuff like that. But it all started <laughs> from a creation for a park for the, and in fact, the zoo, the San Diego Zoo, which is right next to Golden Gate Park, that was part of the World's Fair too. It was like a area with animals, but it also had like, um, I think there was like a, a nude exhibit. <laughs> and boardwalks and shows and all kinds of interesting things. It's just, it's fascinating if you ever, yeah, if you're, go ahead. I, I know that the um, location where the Museum of Science and Industry is in the city of Chicago was a building that was part of the 1893 World's mm -hmm. Fair. Isn't um, that cool? To my knowledge the other buildings that were there for the World's Fair were um, um, either moved or destroyed. The, the other buildings that are there are not, to the best of my knowledge, I could be wrong. Um, but I, I, my gut feeling is that that land was set aside for the World's Fair, and that's where some of the museums right now are. are um, well, it's a big track of land, a beautiful track of land mm -hmm. that's you know, right, right along um, right you know, the, shore, the shoreline. So, yeah. um, you know, because the way Chicago was developed, um, um, they purposely left a lot of land along along the shore, along Lake Michigan, um, that couldn't be um, built upon. And that's come you've got, you, you, you lived in Chicago, all those great beaches and all those great parks that um, extend, um, you know, from south of Chicago to, to you know, north, to the northern part of, of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but I think it's kind of typical that the World's Fair at least created space and then sometimes buildings were, were left behind. Um, I would have thought, now that you're telling me about um, what happened in San Diego, that maybe they would have left more buildings behind, but maybe they weren't built... Um, to, to you know, long-lasting buildings. They were short-term buildings. They were all. I, you know, I, no, I wasn't. I wasn't around in 1893, so I couldn't. <laughs> they, they, they probably, um, they probably uh, didn't get to them in time because they, uh, the architect here was really quick, and our weather is better than in Chicago, so <laughs> it probably they got to it quick enough that they could save as many of those buildings and make them stable. Than, than they probably could in Chicago because you got winter and you got wind and, <laughs> and I tornadoes. Know, you know, I do as a child remember I did attend the New York World's Fair in the 1960s. I can't tell you exactly what date it was, but it was in, in the 1960s. And I don't know if any of the build. You know, I was a small child, so I couldn't even tell you necessarily what I. What I saw, I don't know if any of those buildings, you'd probably have to ask a New Yorker if any of those buildings that were created for the New York World's Fair um, survived afterwards. I, I have no idea. But believe it or not, there was a, there was a World's Fair in, mm -hmm. in New York in the 1960s. There's also, um, they called it an expo in Toronto, and we visited Toronto when I was a kid. Um, and that's all museums and stuff like that. Um, so you're right. I think it's something that they do. But I think they have to do it really quick. So especially if there's a lot of temporary buildings. 
so they don't lose if they want the look of the buildings that they had, they they they, they can't let them deteriorate before they they can do it. They <laughs> they have to do it before it deteriorates so they can reconstruct it. <laughs> At least that's what I think. I don't know. I wasn't around either. <laughs> and actually, I thought of another place. We were in Seville, Spain, um, in in the spring of this year. And um, there are amazing buildings there um, that I think dated to some World's Fair um, or Expo. I don't, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a World's Fair or an Expo um, in either the 1920s or 1930s. And the architecture, I can tell you, was um, was absolutely beautiful. Was absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, I think whenever possible, they they. Um, try and maintain some of those structures, but I think maybe if they don't have a, a use for the buildings or if they're not constructed um, to withstand time, um, they probably um, don't don't survive. But um, I guess you could go around the world and find remnants of, of different world's fairs. <laughs> I think that's cool, though. I mean, why not? Why not try to retain all that excitement and beauty? And it, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so, well, travel, like I said, travel. Um, I know, uh, you know, it's 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 pricey. It's not um, available to to some people. Um, I know some jobs prevented because of a lack of of time off or family or even family obligations. But there is so much um, history, culture. Um, understanding different types of people, the diversity in the world, understanding um, even even understanding cultures through food, um, which is one of the genres I also write about. Um, you just learn so much by experiencing personally, rather than um, let's say going to a restaurant that's trying to knock off um, authentic Italian food. Um, they may or may not have somebody who was trained in Italy or has family recipes from that are um, based in Italian culture. So you really don't know how authentic it is. But when you actually go to like a, 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 a restaurant in Spain or in Italy or somewhere in South America, um, you really get to understand that culture or, um, you know, wherever it is and also realize how they're dependent on um, – Oftentimes, what what is um, the recipes are dependent on what was traditionally grown in that area. Obviously, with uh, modern technology, things uh, there's great transportation systems, so um, fruits and vegetables that are not indigenous can be shipped in, or fish can be shipped in if you're inland. But you can really see how a culture developed prior to that by looking at their traditional recipes or what they um, what a traditional rest, restaurant offers. Um, for instance, in Iceland, where they don't um, grow too many um, fruits and vegetables because of their geography and their terrain and, and just their climate, um, now they do a lot in greenhouses, but traditionally they inhabit. Their, their, their traditional recipes um, have very few uh, fruits and vegetables. They're, they're very heavy on, on um, fish or other forms of protein. It's interesting because... I love traveling. I traveled a lot when I was younger, um, but and and food was really important to me. <laughs> it's 
It's like, I don't want to go to McDonald's when I'm in another country, you know? I don't want to go to a fast food joint. I, I want to go to some place that is maybe fast food for that area, but I don't want to go someplace I could get at home, you know? It, it, it seems foolish and a waste of your trip. I think so, but some people um, aren't foodies. I guess if you're a foodie and you appreciate food for the taste as well as for the culture, you'll gravitate towards um, dining in a local um, restaurant as opposed to some international chain that you could eat the same food uh, wherever you are in the world. Um, it, you know, everybody... Um, Everybody has a different opinion on food, but I, I find I find food very fascinating. Um, I find food markets. I've traveled to food markets around around the world, and it's interesting to see um, what types of stalls are are, are are manned in these in these food markets, um, where the priority of the people are, and how how the people interact with the vendors. Um, and you also get to see you know some of the local favorites if if you're well informed you know you can go and find um, some of the foods that you may or may not find um, in other places of the world um, and food tours are another interesting way to explore um, a country or, or a destination's cuisine um, because they the tour guide um, cherry picks you know, obviously their their favorites or, or who they've contracted with, but you get a kind of a smattering um, of different, maybe different restaurants um, or different kiosks uh, or vendors um, that the, that the tour includes, um, as well as we in in Israel in the in the spring we um, actually took took part in a cooking cooking demonstration in 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 a home in the in in the Galilee. Uh, a Druze woman um, basically showed us her her favorite recipes um, and shared them with us, and we cooked alongside with her. She taught us all types of cool things, and that I I didn't I, I I'm a fairly good cook that I didn't even know um, existed. So um, there's all types of ways to explore food when you're um, on somebody else's turf. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's time to talk about your book, 100 Things to Do in Boulder Before You Die, and there's a bucket on it. <laughs> um, actually, the, um, the book is part of uh, um, a series of books created by a small press in St. Louis called Reedy Press um, for, I can't remember how many years, but I think about a decade or maybe longer. I don't, don't quote me on that. Um, they've been in business for um, doing this series for a while, but there are over a hundred of these um, books throughout the United States, um, and these um, these books all have the same. Um, they come in different colors. The cover of the book is different, um, but they all have this bucket on it, um, and they all, where the number one hundred is, have an imposed picture that is um, some type of landmark or some type of feature of of the of the place mentioned in, you know, that the book covers. Um, so um, I knew in advance that um, my cover, there was no surprise with my cover. I just had to wait and see which of the pictures I submitted um, they would put um, on the cover. And they happened to choose a, a book of the, of the Flatirons, which is a, a landmark um, 
in Boulder, anybody that's come to come to Boulder, um, actually it's not the Flatirons, I'm sorry, it's Chautauqua, it was one of the other choices, um, is actually a picture of Chautauqua, which is a, a national a national park, um, uh, a historical park in, in Boulder, and um, so that's, that's the uh, picture that's on the cover. Can you um, condense your book and, and uh, say a few uh, places that would be fun for someone who's never been to, well, not just uh, Boulder, but Colorado? So basically, um, the book follows a, a set uh, format that the other books have. It has um, five categories, um, distinct categories. Um, from food to drink, um, music and entertainment, sports and recreation, um, culture and history, and shopping and fashion. And under each of these categories, I try and um, make Boulder shine by um, pinpointing the things that you should, if you come to Boulder, you should, should try. But I realize the interests of, let's say, uh, college student is going to be very different than um, let's say their parent or their or their or their grandparents and that locals are going to have a, a different interest let's say than uh, somebody coming for three days um, so I tried to give a cross-section of places um, not really narrowing in on any one audience so some of the restaurants um, in the in the first category, for instance, um, uh, would appeal to to, to college students. Um, there's a couple sections that deal with the bar scene. One one um, favors um, um, college students, where the other one is a more sophisticated and mature or for a more mature audience. Um, I have restaurants, high-end restaurants, that have fine dining, and I have um, coffee shops and and places to go for breakfast. Um, when it comes to um, outdoor activities, I have everything from um, going in a hot air balloon to taking a simple um, walk along Boulder Creek. Um, I um, explain um, a little bit about um, the various options for museums, which we've already talked about earlier. So there's um, museums that are that are found on the university. But there's also museums that are located um, in in Boulder and are and are and are either privately or run or, or run by the city. Um, for instance, on the university, you can go to Fisk Planetarium, and um, which is um, an amazing place um, that's right on campus. Also on campus, you can go to a natural history museum that has um, tools that were dug up in somebody's backyard that primitive tools from Native Americans. Um, let me see what else. You can um, go shopping in, in, in Boulder and find um, all types of interesting things um, from um, clothing that um, people wear um, for CU games, for University of Colorado games, to um, paraphernalia that used to be considered illegal at a store named The Fitter where they um, you, um, sold, sell, well, currently sell glass pipes that they had a lot of trouble with selling um, when marijuana wasn't legal in the state of Colorado. 
Um, you have entertainment. You have live live music venues. I also include about I think it's 12 places that are not in Boulder but can be taken as day trips um, for people who um, are maybe in Boulder for a number of days and want to spend some of the time in the mountains or someplace else. Um, and I include places um, that fall into that category as well. Um, when you go on these trips beforehand, I, I assume you do a lot of research before you go. Uh, how do you, do you like get your notes set in, and put it into your phone or how do you, how do you set up for your trip? Well, um, are you talking about general trips or, or researching um, like the 100 a, things to do with Walter? Like for a book, one of your travel books. Okay, for this, for this book, I, I knew what the parameters were because the publisher was very specific. I knew I had these five categories. I knew that I wanted to have um, weighted a certain way where there was a significant number of, of restaurants as well as outdoor things because that's what people um, tend to gravitate towards. So I created a lot of, initially I created my own list. And since I went under contract at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, things became a little dicey because, um, you know, the lockdowns and the restrictions, there were a lot of places that um, absolutely closed down, some were partially closed down, some it was unclear what they were doing, and there was also the consideration of my safety and my husband's safety. So um, I, I reached out to a, a whole lot of people, um, both that I knew as well as the people in the downtown Boulder um, that um, oversee downtown Boulder. I reached out to visit visit Boulder. I reached out to a lot of um, entities that knew a lot more about Boulder than I did. I reached out to family and friends and created a tremendous number of lists and then categorized, put them all into categories. Um, and then I started researching. Um, some of it was um, just Google searches, so I could see if they were, if these places were actually still in business. Um, and then when I narrowed down my list um, to what I thought was gonna be in the book, I started um, calling these places to get additional information, emailed others, um, and when it was safe, I physically went um, to visit um, many of these places. Um, and over time, um, kind of started to have a feel for what would be in the book and what wouldn't be in the book. And then there were places that I thought would be in the book, but unfortunately the pandemic took them off the roster because they, 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 they closed up. Um, and some of these places have been in Boulder for, for a long period of time, and I, I, did, I didn't imagine that they wouldn't be in the book, but they couldn't be in the book. And then there were some places that, um, for instance, Celestial Seasonings, which is a, um, a tea company, they were one of the top um, tours um, in Boulder prior to the pandemic. But um, when it came time to submitting my, my transcript to the publisher, I couldn't put them in the book because they couldn't tell me when they were going to reopen again. After I did all of um, my, my research, I had to then um, make sure it fit into the parameters um, 
and guidelines that the publisher had provided. Um, a lot of time was spent uh, trying to consolidate the information and also make um, my writing as concise as, as possible because the way the book is designed, it has to, um, each page has a, a, um, a certain number of words and each index has a certain number of entries. So I had to make sure that I complied with um, what the publisher was, was asking for. And that took um, a significant amount of time. And I ultimately handed in um, my, my transcript electronically to the publisher. I think it was like the end of January, beginning of February. And the book was um, published on September 15th. Cool. Um, we're coming to the end. Where can they get it? <laughs> You can get you can get it a lot of different places. Um, um, uh, the best place to find the the complete list is to go to uh, um, my hundred things to do in Boulder page on the SandraBornstein.com website. Um, on that page, I hope to keep it current of all the places in Boulder where the book is available. It's also available through the through the publisher, Reedy Press, you can go to my author page, um, the, the Sandy Bornstein at, at Reedy Press page, and order directly through the publisher. Um, and uh, like everything else in the world, um, <laughs> I think just about everything else in the world, it's available on Amazon.com, but it's also available um, at Barnes and Barnes and Noble online and and in stores, Barnes and Noble stores um, in in the in in and around Boulder. Great. Um, are you on social media? What social media are you on? And what's your um, handles? And what's your handles on it? That's very so, important. Um, my primary, um, my time is um, um, kind of at a premium right now. So while I have an Instagram um, site, uh, the Traveling Born Scenes is that one, um, Sandra Bornstein. Sandra Bornstein Writer 2 is my Facebook page. Um, well, I do have accounts with both of those. Um, I'll admit I, uh, I, um, I, ha I rarely post anything on Facebook and um, just because of time constraints. And Instagram, unfortunately, um, I stopped um, over two years ago posting anything on Instagram because um, around the time my husband was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, I just um, I just totally stopped um, posting anything there. So the probably the best place to find information about the book is is uh, the Hundred Things um, Boulder page on on the SandraBornstein.com site because um, I update that with um, where the book can be um, purchased, um, events that I'm having in and around Boulder. Uh, I also will will. Um, post a recording of, of, of this interview as well. Um, all my interviews are also um, included on that on that web page. Okay. Um, thank you very much for coming on my show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> no, I did I didn't enjoy it. I remember um, um, that I was on your on your show more than a decade ago when I wrote my, my first book, May this be the best year of your life. Um, I, re I remember chatting with you, and I'm glad that you were willing um, to talk with me again. Oh, yeah, happily. Um, thank you very much, and thank you for chatting with Sherry.
Lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 